Hey, fellas, hope you're doing well. Hope you're enjoying this uh, amazing weather we're having after the apocalyptic ice storm we had last week. Um, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 34. As you're turning there, just a bit of a summary um, of where we've been so far. Um, you'll remember back in Matthew, all the way back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew gave us a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. And this is what Matthew said. Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That was a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. Three things, preaching, teaching, healing, word, and deed. All of which are meant to reveal to us the good news of the kingdom of God and the authority that Jesus has as king. Now, in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which we've already studied, we see a demonstration of Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry. Now, in verses 8 through 9, we get uh, uh, 10 stories. We're going to be looking at chapter 8 right now, or today, and, and chapter 9 next week. But in these two chapters, Matthew collects 10 stories of Jesus' miraculous works and deeds, all of which are meant to give us a beautiful picture of who Jesus is, particularly his authority as king. And there's much to learn. So let's go ahead and look at it together in chapter 8, starting in verse 1. God's word says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. In verse 5 we read, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. <clears throat> but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but, but only say a word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west, that is Gentiles, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that is ethnic Israel, will be thrown into the outer darkness in a place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not everyone of ethnic Israel, but generally speaking. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And verse 14, Jesus, we read, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying with sick uh, with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening uh, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and cast out, or, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. But a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In verse 23, and when we got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea. So the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus was asleep. And when they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to him, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the appointed time, that is, the, the time to come? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the two demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would speak to us for your servants listen, that we wouldn't simply be informed, but truly transformed by your word and the power of your spirit. Uh, we love you, O God, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen. At one time or another, I'm sure that um, <laughs> all of us have experienced something like this following scenario, most likely in high school. You're at a house party, uh, your best bud's house, parents are gone, all of your friends are there, and y'all are having a very good time doing things that you probably weren't supposed to be doing. But you're having a great time, but some knucklehead turns the music up loud and bothers the old couple next door and they call the authorities. <laughs> uh, several minutes later, you hear uh, the doorbell. Then all of a sudden in the doorway, you see a policeman. And now everybody, um, <laughs> it's like deer to headlights. And the kid who lives there goes to the door and says, does there seem to be a problem officer? And of course there's a problem. And the officer says, who's in charge here, son? And he says, well, my parents are gone, but I live here. He goes, okay, so no one's in charge. Well, guess what? I'm in charge now. Everybody go home. And everybody does <laughs> because whether if they like it or not, they understand that that policeman is the only one that has true authority and they could either listen or pay the consequences. Now, the point is after Jesus came down from that mountain, he didn't have a uniform on. But after his teaching, everyone marveled at him because they realized whether if they liked it or not, Jesus had true authority. You see, up until this point, everybody had been living as if they were their own authority or whether if there was no authority. But now in this moment, they recognize that the owner of the house has come. The one with true authority has arrived. Now, I'm also willing to bet that many of us are somewhat untrusting of those in authority. Now, part of that is in our sinful nature. We want to be our own king accountable to no one. But others of us, you know, we've seen throughout history, there's been many men and women who have abused the authority they had. 
And maybe we or those that we're close to have experienced abuse of those in power in one shape, form, or another. So we might be saying to ourselves, okay, I recognize that that Jesus is in authority, but how can I know if I can trust him or not? How do I know if I can trust him with the wounds that I carry, with the, with the issues that I'm bearing? How do I know that I can trust him with my life? Uh, brothers, that's essentially what chapters 8 and 9 is all about. We see these amazing signs and wonders, these miracle stories. But Matthew includes them not because they're just awesome stories. He includes them because he wants us to understand who Jesus is what type of king he is, and why we have every reason to trust him with our lives. And brothers, that's that's my hope for this lesson and next week's lesson, that we would get a, a full picture of who Jesus is, and therefore to be encouraged to entrust him with everything that we have and to submit to him as the loving king that he is. Now, again, there's a bunch of stories in chapter 8 that we're going to look to as they come. Um, we're not going to be able to look at every verse in detail, but I do want to try to get to the spiritual meaning of each of these stories and see how they fit into the, to the greater theme that Matthew's presenting us, that Jesus has absolute authority over all things and therefore demands absolute allegiance from us as his followers. Okay, so the first point, there's four points. The first point I want us to see is in verses 1 through 17, Jesus has authority over disease. Now, to prove this point, uh, this authority of Christ is revealed in three different ways in three different stories. The first one comes in the first four verses where I've labeled it is that uh, Jesus cleans the unclean. Now, back then, I'm sure y'all have I've heard this before in a lesson or a sermon or in your own study, but leprosy was, you know, truly the worst disease that you could possibly get. There was no treatment. There was no cure for it. It, it was uh, very painful. It was unsightly. And it was a death sentence. Um, and, and not just to talk about the physical side of it. That, that's bad enough. There's also the social aspect and the spiritual aspect of it. Truly, if someone got leprosy back then, um, holistically speaking, you were a dead man walking. Let's just think about it socially. Back then, if you had leprosy, you were commanded. If you were walking through town or at the market, you had to shout to everyone around you, unclean, unclean, unclean. You had to do that so that other people would know that you have leprosy. It'd be like walking into the supermarket today and, and yelling, I have AIDS, I have AIDS, or COVID, COVID here. It's humiliating and dehumanizing. But you are commanded to do that so other people wouldn't touch you, so that they would know to steer clear from you. It was actually illegal for a healthy person to greet a leprous person. You were socially ostracized. That's the social aspect. Let's think about the spiritual aspect of it. You were considered cursed by God. You were spiritually unclean. If you came in contact with a, a, a person with leprosy, you would become spiritually unclean. A leprous person could not even go to worship. Okay, so, so that, that's, that's the context. I mean, you were holistically a dead man walking, physically, spiritually, socially. Now, it's with that context in mind then that we see how remarkable and truly beautiful, uh, this first miracle is. 
Jesus, he gets done with his Sermon on the Mount. He's coming down from the Mount. And the first person that approaches him is a, is a spiritually, socially, ceremonially unclean person. Now, this the, the, the Jewish reader at the time, and, and truly all the folks that were following him, this was a high tense moment. Like, what in the world was Jesus going to do with this? Because all the social and, and cultural and religious sensibilities would tell you to get the heck out of Dodge. Don't be anywhere near this person. But what does Jesus do? First off, I want us to notice the faith of this person with leprosy. It is such a beautiful faith. First off, he had absolute trust in the authority of Jesus and his ability to clean him. He also had a posture of humility. He said, Jesus, if you will do this, I know it will be done. Meaning that I know that I don't deserve this. I know that you don't need to do it. But if it's within your will, I know that you can do this. No one else could, but I know that you can, Jesus. It's a remarkable faith. But what's even more remarkable is how Jesus responded in verse 3. How did Jesus respond? Jesus touched him. Are you kidding me? I doubt very seriously this man had been touched by anybody, including his family, in 10 plus years. Jesus touched him. Think about this. Jesus, we know who Jesus is. He had the power to clean this man by his word, even by thinking it. But, but in compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him to heal him. Jesus dignified the undignified. He loved the unlovable. It's unbelievable. There's so much that we can learn evangelistically from how Jesus approached this man in love. But, but the main thing that we see is when Jesus touched him, he did not become contaminated, but rather he cleaned the contaminated. The, the overall point, brothers, is that Jesus, he identifies with unclean people. And he gives us a, a snapshot a foretaste of what he was going to do at the hill of Calvary. Every single one of us, brothers, are spiritually unclean before God. Yet Jesus, in love, cleanses us by going to the cross. That's what Jesus does with his authority. He takes unclean, unworthy men like you and me and makes us white as snow and presents us blameless before God the Father. Jesus cleans unclean people. Secondly, he heals the ethnically outcast. We see this in verses uh, 5 through 13. Now, the thing that really jumps off the page in this second miracle is that we see the healing ministry of Jesus was not simply restricted um, to ethnic Israel. It went outward uh, to, to the Gentiles, to people like you and me, to pagans, to people who had no idea who Yahweh was. Now, there's two things that we can pull from this. First off, in Christ, God is, is keeping his promise to bless all families on earth through Abraham. Gentiles were going to be saved. And at the same time, there were some that were within ethnic Israel that were not. Jesus is a whole new bowl of gumbo. He, he's, he's gathering people, a new people for himself, people from every corner of the world, from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And we're going to learn about this in a World Missions Conference this Sunday, uh, Second Presers, or for those of you that, that visit. But Jesus is gathering all sorts of people. And that's the good Matthew presents this to us, remember, at the very beginning of his gospel with the story of the Magi. But, but God's kingdom, the good news of the gospel, goes out to, to, to Gentiles even. But the other thing that we see is what true faith looks like. 
And the example we get is actually from a Gentile, the centurion. I love how D.A. Carson um, describes the worldview, or at least what was happening in this centurion's heart and mind as he was uh, having a conversation with Jesus. This is what D.A. Carson says. He says, in Roman society, the emperor has supreme authority, and he delegates it to officers like this centurion. So to disobey these officials is to essentially disobey the emperor himself. Now, this centurion sees that Jesus is invested with a similar authority. Only this person that he represents must be the true God. This officer understands, as John Calvin comments in his commentary, that, that he who by the mere expression of his will restores health to men must possess supreme authority. I like that. <laughs> because many of the people who, who should have known better did not recognize this supreme authority in Jesus. But, but this Gentile, with his life experience and his limited knowledge, understood who Jesus was. He was the Son of God. It's really remarkable what this centurion guard does because back then Caesar presented himself as Savior, as the Christ. That's essentially what Caesar means. But in this passage, he, he's recognizing that, that Caesar is a phony Jesus. He is the true Son of God. He is the true Savior. And, and what we understand here, what we get from Matthew, is that, brothers, our heritage and our good works and our morality um, doesn't save us any more than the Jewishness and the morality of the Pharisees saved them. What is required of us is a humble faith and the authority of Jesus to forgive sins and to rule over us as king. That's what we get here. But again, so Jesus, he has the authority to clean the unclean. He has the, uh, the authority to, to heal the ethnically outcast. Thirdly, he has the authority to restore the culturally marginalized. Uh, marginalized. We see that in verses 14 through 15. So after healing a leper, after um, uh, conversing with the centurion, he now goes into Peter, mother-in-law's house um, to, uh, to heal her. She was a very sick woman. She had a high fever. Now, we remember from our own studies or for old sermons that women back then, especially those who were poor, like this woman, were second, third-class citizens. They had no rights. No one cared for them. No one looked out for them. It was a very dangerous lot to have in that environment. But just like the leper before her, what does Jesus do? He humanizes her. He dignifies her. He loves her tangibly. He actually goes into her home. The Son of God kneels down, cups her hands, and speaks tenderly to her. It's amazing. And he restores her. Now, there's so many things that we can say about that, but what I really want to pay attention to is what we see in verses 16 through 17, because this is really the point of these first three um, healing stories. In verses 16 through 17, this is what Matthew writes. He says, Many were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 53, verse 4. Now, brothers, this is why that is significant, because by word and deed, Jesus is revealing himself to be the suffering servant. And this is why that's important. We know that all, that all uh, illness and all disease 
And all suffering exists because of the fall of original sin. Now, some of our pain and some of our disease is a result of our own sinful choices. But we know that all sin, no matter, or rather all suffering, no matter how you got it or why you're experiencing it, is as a result of original sin. So here, Jesus connecting his healing ministry to this prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah, Jesus is telling us that he has come to deal with all suffering, no matter why you have that suffering, he's come to deal with all suffering by taking on suffering himself. This is what Jesus demonstrates at the cross, isn't it? And Jesus at the cross comes to deal with the root issue of all pain and suffering, sin. And he does it by becoming sin himself. He, he restores us. He cleanses us. He heals us by becoming sin for our sakes. This is what Jesus does at, at the cross. Uh, so, so, so here's the point. These miracle stories, they're intended to give us a behind-the-scenes picture of what it will be like when God's kingdom is here in full, when Jesus' authority is fully seen and realized on earth. When, when, when all sin, when, when all suffering is wiped away. Now, that day is not yet. We will experience pain, we'll experience suffering, we'll experience death in this life. But the good news is, is that the root issue has been dealt with by this suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can endure with hope. We can experience joy down deep in our hearts, in spite of our circumstances, as we long for that day to come. And the only thing that is required of us is to trust the authority of Jesus to forgive sins and to rule over our lives as king. First main point, Jesus has authority over disease, meaning he has authority over sin, and he's dealing with it, and we can trust him. Second main point, Jesus has authority over us as his disciples. We see this in verses 18 through 22. Now, on the surface of it, these two short little stories about the cost of discipleship uh, seem misplaced. They're sandwiched between these miracles. Why are they there? Uh, well, as everything else in the Bible, it's purposeful. And what Matthew is trying to show us is that Jesus, who has authority, absolute authority over all of the world, um, he also has authority over the lives of his disciples. Much more than that, his authority demands the allegiance of his disciples. Now, we see uh, two things, two principles. First off, in verses 18 through 20, Jesus is worthy of unconditional trust. Before Jesus and his disciples uh, cross the sea, a would-be disciple uh, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, presumably, this man was present for all the miraculous things that Jesus had just done. And he said to himself, I want to be a part of that. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, now, with this man, like he does with all of us, Jesus saw down deep into his heart and knew that this man had not really yet uh, counted the cost of discipleship. He had no idea what he was saying. And that's why Jesus responded the way that he did. And he's essentially saying, man, if you want to follow me, great. But no, if you do follow me, I am all that you're ever going to have. It's similar to what he says to, to, the, to the rich young ruler. 
Now, truly, we know that Jesus wasn't completely without in this life. He had dear friends like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, Lazarus who, who uh, fed him, who provided for him. But as we look at Jesus' life throughout this gospel, we do recognize that he had very little possessions to call his own, save the, the clothes on his back. And we also see that he was regularly rejected by people. He was not popular. He was regularly rejected by people, including those close to him, like his best friends, his disciples, including his family. Oh, yeah, and he was also arrested, beaten, humiliated, abused, and crucified. That was his life. And Jesus would later say in this, in this gospel account that if you follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. <laughs> and so Jesus understood that this man had not yet understood and fully grasped what that meant. He knew that this man wanted the benefits of Jesus, but he did not care to have the cost of following Jesus. Uh, this man had a, a, a cheap grace mentality. Now, you've heard that phrase, cheap grace, coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is how Dietrich describes what cheap grace is. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without uh, repentance, grace without the cross, which is no grace at all. True grace, however, is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of which a man gladly sells all that he has for it. Well, we get with this first story is that if we're going to follow Jesus, that very well mean that it could cost everything that we have, including our own life. And a would-be disciple does not care for that because ultimately he does not trust Jesus. However, a true disciple is more than okay with that. He trusts Jesus completely. He trusts what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and, and all else will be added to you. They trust that and they trust that even if they lose everything in this life, it's okay because they've gained Christ and Christ is more than enough. But this is what we understand first off about discipleship, that Jesus is worthy of unconditional trust. Secondly, we see in verses 21 through 22 that Jesus is worthy of undivided affection. Now, back then, uh, burying the dead took priority over most everything, including morning prayers, the Shema, which is so very important. Um, but burying the dead took priority of that. You know, first off, you want to show uh, honor to those who have passed away. But also, this corpse is unclean. You have to bury it or, or put it in, in, in a tomb. That's just how it worked. So one might think to themselves that if this man came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I have to go bury my dad. Uh, is that okay? That Jesus would say, absolutely. But that's not what he says here. And the reason that he doesn't say that is because it's clear from the text that this man's father had not yet passed away. Because if he had, this man would not be there talking to Jesus. He would be making funeral arrangements. And furthermore, there, there's good indication that this man's father wasn't even sick. Commentators say that this, that this would-be disciple was giving Jesus a what-if scenario. He was hedging his bets, essentially. He, he was taking a possible future obligation and using that to postpone following Jesus right then and there, possibly for the next several years. And Jesus saying, guys, this, I want you to follow me, but this is not how it works. This isn't, this isn't a payment plan. I want you, I want all of you, and I want you now. <laughs> now, we can put this in today's scenarios. We, we, we may have done this when we were younger. We may know other folks who have 
thought this way. Yes, I would love to follow Jesus, but I'm going to wait till after college because I want to sow my wild oats. Or yes, I want to follow Jesus, but only after I get married and have kids because that's when that's when real obligation happens. Of course, I want to raise my kids in the faith, but I'll deal with that later. Or yeah, I'll follow Jesus only after I retire because I'm really focused on building my business. I mean, I got employees to think about. Jesus says, listen, no, follow me. Follow me now. Now, the key behind this is is in verse 20, when Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, this is a a term that he loves uh, to use to describe himself. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. It's talking about his full authority. He uses it elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew. I've given you some references, but it's, he always uses it in reference to his full deity and his authority to forgive sins, uh, to, to uh, rise from the dead, um, is in his authority to be judge over all the world. And so we get this picture of this authoritative king. And what comes to mind then is on the day to come, every single knee will bow before Jesus as the Son of Man, as the king. Now, some knees will bow out of grateful adoration. Other knees will bow in bitter defeat. And Matthew is saying, brothers and sisters, all who are listening, don't wait. Don't uh, wait because of your fear of what the cost of discipleship might be. Don't let that prevent you from coming to Jesus because when you come to Jesus, he is infinitely greater and more valuable than everything you have anyway. Come to him now. It's worth it. I mean, the reason that this is couched in between these miracle stories, because just think about it. If if fever and paralysis and leprosy obeyed Jesus, who are we not to obey Jesus? That's what Matthew's saying. Jesus has absolute authority over all things and therefore demands absolute allegiance from his disciples. Now, the third main point comes in verses 23 through 27. Jesus has authority over disaster, calming of the sea. Now, a lot of the times when we hear uh, this passage preached on, um, you know, preachers will give us these really amazing examples of how Jesus will calm the storms that we experience daily in this life, which Jesus, of course, can do and often does. But brothers, that is not the point of verses 23 through 27. The point is much deeper, much grander than that. And the point becomes obvious to us in the question that the disciples ask in verse 27. What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, these disciples weren't dumb. They were good Jews. And they knew from their Bibles, from Psalm 89, from Psalm 107, that only Yahweh had the authority and the power to command the sea and the wind and the waves. And therefore, they marveled when Jesus did it because they began to realize two things. First off, they began to realize, uh, not fully, but they began to understand that Jesus isn't just some ordinary guy who could do magic tricks that could tell them how to be right with God. They they understood that the guy in the boat with them wasn't mere man, but he was God. God was in the boat with them. The authority that Yahweh possesses is the authority that Jesus has. And they marveled at that. And if that was the point, they began to at least somewhat understand the promise is that God is with his people. 
Friends, that is the promise that God is in the boat with us. Jesus is with us. He's with us even now, even more closely than he was with his disciples because he's given us his spirit. He is with us intimately. The promise is not that Jesus is going to deliver us from every single daily minor storm that we experience in this life. The Bible does not promise that. The the sickness and the illness and the diseases that we get in this life might lead to our death. The, The relationships that we love and cherish in this life may never be restored. Now, it is good for us. In fact, we're commanded to pray for such deliverances. But we also recognize that is not where our ultimate hope is found. Our ultimate hope is found in the fact that Jesus has already quieted the only storm that could ever possibly truly destroy us, the the storm of our Father's wrath. Jesus took that on himself. He quieted that already. And resting in that then, we we have an additional hope, an additional promise that Jesus is with us in all of these lesser storms, as significant as they might be, They are certainly lesser than the storm of our Father's wrath. But still, we have the promise that Jesus is with us in the midst of those things. God himself and the person of Jesus has obliged himself to us. He has promised to be with us every single step of the way until that glorious day when his kingdom has come and every minor storm is quieted and every tear is forgotten. And all things are made new. And we have the assurance of knowing that he is with us every step of the way until that day, leading us throughout the other side. He has authority over all things, brothers. Lastly, he has authority over all the forces of evil. We see this in verses 28 through 34. If you imagine uh, chapter 8 is is like a, a piece of music. Uh, Matthew has been building up to this moment, verses 28 through 34. So we begin sweetly and softly with Jesus' healing of the leper. Um, that, that beautiful piece of music that we see in the faith of the centurion of Jesus visiting the sick a mother-in-law of Peter. The music begins to swell and build, and you might hear drums with um, Jesus quieting the storm. But the pinnacle of this music, the climax, is in this passage where you see two demon-possessed men living among the tombs, shrieking madness, ending with a herd of pigs rushing into the sea. The point that, that Matthew is making is that Jesus has the authority to teach us. We saw it in Summer on the Mount. He has the authority over illness, sin. He has the authority over our lives. He has has the authority over all of the natural world. He also has authority over all the prince uh, powers and principalities of this world. Jesus has the authority over our nightmares, brothers. He terrifies that which terrifies us. And this is what Matthew wants us to understand as we sign on to follow Jesus. He is not just some guy. He is not just some teacher. He's not just some healer who tells us what we must do to be right with God. He is the Son of God. And he has authority over everything this physical world and this spiritual world can throw at us. And because of that, we have every reason to entrust our lives into his hands. The only question is, will we? You know, it's, it's, it's quite shocking to see how these townspeople 
and those demons responded to Jesus. And I think sometimes we can be just like those demons and just like those townspeople. Go with me on this. Uh, ironically, those demons knew more about the true identity of Jesus more than his disciples did. They, they knew that he was the Son of God. And it was because of that belief that they were terrified because they, they had no idea what, what Jesus might do to them in his authority. Uh, they were terrified because of it. And friends, can't we also sometimes, maybe that's why you're not choosing to follow Christ now. You're still deciding upon it because you believe enough to know that he will have demands on your life. I mean, just think about those townspeople. They just witnessed a, a miracle that Jesus delivered their friends, their family members from demon possession, but they were mad. And they begged Jesus to leave. Why? Because all they saw was a loss of income with those pigs. One commentator said this, oftentimes humanity prefers pigs rather than a savior because they are more interested in material prosperity and comfort than they are having true and everlasting life. Friends, is that why you may not be following Jesus now because you are afraid of the cost of discipleship? Trust me, Jesus is the treasure in the field. He is more than worth it. Go to him. Now, those of us who have counted the cost of discipleship, who are following Jesus by faith, we still struggle with fear. And maybe the reason we have fear is because of our unbelief. We fear illness. We fear um, financial insecurity. We fear the loss of jobs. We fear death. But as Christians, we, we know better. And ironically, if we had as much belief as these demons we would know that there's absolutely nothing to fear in this life. Why? Because of who Christ is. He is our loving King who has authority over all things. He is the Son of God. And we know then that there is nothing of heaven or hell or in this earth that could ever possibly snatch us from His hands. We are, we are the most secure people in the world, brothers, if you are in Christ. But here's the thing, our security does not come from this world. It does not come from health. It does not come from wealth. It does not come from prosperity. Here's the point. Where does it come from? It comes from being secured in Christ's hands. And knowing and believing the promise that he has obliged himself to us, to love us, to be with us, and to walk us safely into his kingdom. And, and brothers, when we're resting in that, when we're trusting that, when we're submitting to his loving authority as our king, when we're, when we're resting in him, we can abide in hope. We can experience joy no matter what this world throws at us. Because we're looking forward to that day to come when his uh, authority is fully realized and experienced in this world as king, when his will and his kingdom is done on earth as it is in heaven, when every disease, when every disaster, when every demon is no more. We're longing for that day, resting in the fact that he's in the boat with us <laughs> until that day arrives. So here, here's the great takeaway, and it's very short. Uh, when we look at chapter 8, brothers, um, the authority that, that, that Matthew paints for us, the authority of Jesus, it's not merely meant to be observed by us. 
It's meant to be relied upon and rejoiced in. And therefore, whenever you're watching this uh, later tonight or tomorrow morning, every day of our lives, as those by faith with the help of the Holy Spirit, may we trust wholeheartedly, may we rest peacefully, may we submit completely and rejoice gladly in the authority of Jesus Christ to forgive sins and to reign over us as King. Love you, brothers. Have a good one.